Hey, good evening. Good to see you all again. Um, last week we talked, just to kind of bring a few of you up to speed, I see a few new faces that weren't here last week. We, we talked a little bit about the church and what I meant by church is Big C Church, not, not New Hope Church, but the, the corporate church worldwide. And not only the corporate church worldwide, but the church that has existed from the time of Jesus Christ's death all the way up until the present, present day. So anybody born after that sacrifice was made by Jesus who believes and trusts in that sacrifice alone for salvation were brought into the body of Christ. And we studied that last week. We studied about how we're a, a unique entity different from the Old Testament. We're going to see different from the some people that are going to be coming down the road, what the Bible calls tribulation saints. We're a unique people. And we talked last week how we're given the identity of being the body of Christ. We're also given the identity of being the bride of Christ. And we talked a little bit about how we can see this amazingly beautiful illustration of Christ, the bridegroom, symbolizing in the Scripture and then the ancient Jewish, Jewish wedding um, culture, their, their tradition that they would practice. We see the, an amazing picture of the bridegroom and the groom being married. So it was a pretty neat study we did last week. Um, so I'm going to kind of follow up, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the church tonight. We're going to take a little different approach. But again, talking about the church, the corporate church. So I'm going to kind of start with a rhetorical question tonight. Now, I realize you're not supposed to answer rhetorical questions, but if you could nod your heads, that, those always help me. Um, if you haven't figured out, if, if any of you have been here while I'm talking, I, I just I've, love feedback. If I can see some heads nod or hands go up, it just makes me know that somebody's, somebody's at least... Jace, Bruce, Daryl, anyone who's behind here, I'm sure you guys can appreciate that. Alrighty, so my question is, are we as Christians supposed to be eternally minded? Thank you, yes. Of course we are, right? So if you read the Bible and take it seriously, that just the entire bulk of Scripture just has that, that approach to it. Yes, we're supposed to be eternally minded. We're told this life is a vapor. We're... We're, we're to be eternally minded. We're to be focused on where we're going more than where, we, where we're at currently. So let's read a couple passages that we've all heard before, but that clearly, clearly tell us that, to kind of set the foundation here tonight. So the first one I want to pull up is Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And I think Denise is going to have those on the screen, so thank you, Denise. Again, Paul talking to the um, church that he planted there. If ye then be risen with Christ, and we are, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on those things above, not on the things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Amen. So we're, we're specifically told there by Paul that we are to be setting our affections on things above, right? And then a really common one we've all read in James 4, verse 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanish away. So yes, to answer the question, of course, as Christians, we're supposed to be eternally minded. Now, who's heard the, who's heard the saying? I know we've all heard this before. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Anybody heard that one? I've always thought that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I know what they're trying to say there, but I, I think on the contrary. I think if we were more heavenly-minded, we, we, 
but to absolutely be more earthly good. So let me explain that. So what I mean by that is if we realize that what we do with what God has required of us here while we're on earth, if we realize that what we're doing has an impact on our eternity, I think we would, we would do things a little differently. So that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. Alrighty. So let's build on this idea a little bit. So the idea that what we do matters. Okay. I'm going to read a um, pretty awesome scripture in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10. I'm going to wait on Denise to pull it up. Thank you, Denise. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I highlighted that because we're going to come back to that in a minute. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Okay. Now, let me be clear. I'm going to kind of push pause for a minute before I go on here because we're going to be talking about thing, rewards for things we do. So we've got, to, we've got to make one thing really clear tonight. We are reconciled by God by nothing we do. Does that make sense? It is nothing we do that puts us in right standing with God. It is simply believing on the finished work of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, nothing else. That's the foundation. Faith and belief in that is what saves us. So Let's set that to the side. That's the amazing truth. I, sh- I could probably just walk down and be done, but let's build on that because Scripture does. Okay, so listen to this powerful verse. Actually, let me back up for a minute. I've got a statement here that I wanted to read. We're, we're reconciled by faith alone. However, eternity is not going to look the same for all of us. That's kind of a weird statement, right? What we do here on earth actually matters in eternity. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. All right, listen to this powerful verse in 1 Corinthians 3. I actually am going to read this in the New Living Translation because I think it, it gets the point across a little better. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. We just talked about that. There's no other foundation. No other foundation can be laid. Nothing can be built on the foundation other than what Christ did for us. We continue. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. Now, here's the key part. The builder will be saved, but like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames. You guys heard that scripture before? So what that scripture is suggesting, what Paul is talking about there is, hey, the foundation is Christ alone, but we got to build on that foundation after that, right? After we become born again, we're not supposed to remain babies in Christ. We're supposed to be growing in the gifts that God gave us. We're supposed to be building on that foundation. And what this scripture is suggesting is our motives our methods and why we're building. I'll, I'll even kind of bring it full circle to me. My intent, intentions as I studied and prayed and prepared for this tonight, God knows my heart. None of you do. 
God knows my heart and, and whether or not it was pure coming in here, whether I'm up just up here to make a name for myself. You know, God knows that alone. Nobody else does. Nobody else can see what's in here right now. In this work, this act that I'm doing tonight, God's going to try that by fire at the judgment seat, that scripture says, and it's either going to burn up or it's going to keep. So, pretty, pretty powerful verse. That, that always makes me tremble. So, we see from this verse that some of, us, some of us are going to make it to heaven and stand before Jesus, having nothing to show for the work or lack thereof that we did for him while here. Doesn't the scripture say that? It says some are, some are going to be there, they're going to make it through, but it's going to be just like they've barely made it through the wall of flames. Scary thought. I don't want to show up in heaven having done nothing for Jesus, barely make it in there. Now, I know we, we kind of humbly say all the time, and, you know, I understand. I, I've done the same thing. We, we'll humbly say, I would just love to make it. You know, I'm, I'm unworthy. I just want to make it there. And that's an awesome statement. I, I understand where people are coming from when they say that. I've made that same statement. But there's more. You know, we're specifically told here that, that there's more to this. So let's build on that. Okay. So the previous verse talked about when the things are tried that there are going to be rewards for those things. Do you guys remember hearing that? So let's kind of talk about those. Those rewards are actually crowns. The Bible talks about crowns that we're going to get. And you kind of can see this depicted right here. Um, this is Jesus crowning uh, a member of the church. Now, again, before we go into this a little bit, let's, let's all agree that the crowns aren't the desire, right? It's, it's Jesus alone. It's, it's eternity there worshiping him in his actual presence. The crowns don't matter to me. And clearly we see in Scripture, what do we do with those crowns anyway? We just throw them right back at his feet, and deservingly so. But the crowns are mentioned in Scripture. So probably should pay attention to him, right? Is there a reason that the, that the Holy Spirit inspired the, the authors to put that information in the Bible. We also just discussed the fact that we, we should be more eternal-minded. So should we, should we like to know what, or probably desire to know what these crowns are and, and maybe want to try to attain them? Again, I would love to have as many crowns as I can just to throw at Jesus' feet. The crowns, aren't my, the crowns aren't my desire, but it would be awesome just to have a handful to toss at them. Okay. Let's talk about these crowns. So the first crown... Has anybody ever done a study on this before to actually see these, these crowns are mentioned in the Bible? And it's pretty amazing when you break them down and look at what they are and, and who's rewarded them. Again, these crowns are for the church only. I'm going to point that out here in a minute and show you where I find that. So the first crown is, going to, is called now, the crowns are given different names, and that may be hard to read. This is probably the smallest font I'll use, so I apologize for that. But it's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Actually, I think we're, are we out of order there, Denise? The first one should be the incorruptible crown. And if not, no big deal, I'll, I'll skip ahead. Okay, that is, uh, that's called my error, user error for not changing that when I made those slides. So the first one is the incorruptible crown. The, the passage there, so ignore that, that passage. The incorruptible crown is found in Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Know ye not that ye which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. 
And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as the one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bringeth it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself shall be cast away. And again, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. So the incorruptible crown, Paul mentions that there are those out there striving for crowns, striving to win things. He's probably referencing the Roman culture he was living in. You know, they were the gladiators and trying to obtain these crowns. And he was saying, these crowns are corruptible. We're striving for an incorruptible crown, one that'll, that'll never perish. And this, is, this crown is, is referred to by scholars as the victor's crown. So this crown is rewarded to those who, dis, who have disciplined their bodies and were able to practice self-denial to the sinful desires of the flesh. Pretty amazing, right? We're told all throughout Scripture that there's a war going on internally, the flesh and the spirit fighting. So there's a crown awarded to the, to the believers who are able to, you know, it's a daily fight, right? Who are able to put that flesh and to, to snuff it out and, and to let the spirit dictate what we do. There's a reward for that. It's called the victor's crown, the incorruptible crown. So the second one is the crown of rejoicing. And this scripture verse here, thanks, Denise. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? So as you read 1 Thessalonians 2, the context here is Paul's writing to the church he had planted in Thessalonica, and he's basically reminding them what all he had gone through to bring them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hardships and how he didn't care and it was worth it. And so this is, the, this is called, commonly called the soul winner's crown. So there's a crown given in heaven to those who are actively fulfilling the Great Commission, who are out telling people about the gospel. Missionaries, I think of the missionaries who have dedicated their lives to just spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. How many amazing crowns are going to be cast on them that they'll be able to cast back at the feet of Jesus? So that's called the crown of rejoicing, also known as the soul winner's crown. Crown three, the crown of righteousness. This can be found in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So there's actually a crown rewarded to those in the body of Christ who are eagerly and anxiously awaiting the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church. I know that group, that fringe group, and you know, I'm, I'm part of that. Sometimes that fringe group's looked at as wackos, you know. My goodness, they're, they're, we're probably who they're talking about when they say, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But there's a crown awarded to the believer who is just desperate and longing for Jesus to come back. And I think that's an awesome thing. I want that crown. So again, the crown of righteousness. Crown four is the crown of glory. Excuse me. Scripture reference here is 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. The elders which are among you I exhort, whom all, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, 
taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, not being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So this crown is commonly called the elder's crown. This crown is going to be rewarded or awarded to those who are leaders, pastors, elders, teachers, who were godly examples to the flock of believers that were entrusted and assigned to their care. What an awesome thing. I think of so many people that give of their time teaching our children. Um, you know, I immediately think of Pastor and you know, all of his, the years that he's selflessly given to this church and, and had the ridiculous responsibility of a flock of people that he's sort of got a, you know, a pretty huge impact on, on their spiritual well-being with, with what he's teaching them every week. So, crown, crown rewarded for that, for all of us. And I think, I think we could argue all of us are in some sort of teaching capacity, right? You know, whether it's our own children or, or those we're in the workplace with. So, pretty amazing thing, the crown of glory, also known as the elder's crown. And the last crown is the crown of life. Scripture reference here is Revelation 2.10, and then also we'll read a passage in James 1 that also mentions the crown of life. So, Revelation 2.10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And then James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So this is commonly referred to as the martyr's crown. So the martyr's crown is a reward promised by Jesus himself to Christians who face persecution and remain faithful unto death. To those who patiently endure testings, temptations, and trials, Jesus makes the promise. Jesus makes this promise specifically to the church in Smyrna, which immediately represented the persecuted church at that time in the first century and also had a prophetic representation of the persecuted church throughout the church age. So the context of the Scripture in Revelation 2 is Jesus was addressing the church in Smyrna, telling them you're going to face tribulation, but it also had bearings on anybody for the last 2,000 years who has suffered and died and been in bondage for Jesus Christ. They're going to be rewarded a specific crown. I think it'll be awesome to see that in heaven. So those are the five crowns. Had, uh, had most of you heard of those before? We've, I'm sure we've all read those in Scripture, come across those, and if you're, if you're like me at times, you can just read that and, okay, cool, there's a crown talked about there, but when you really pull it out and do a study on it, it's kind of neat to see that there are specifically five crowns promised to the body of Christ for specific things. So again, if we're, if we're told what the crowns were, doesn't that kind of give you a, a pretty good idea of, of some of the expectations our, our Heavenly Father has of us? Be out there winning souls. Be eager for His return. Um, you know, if, if it comes down to it, be willing to die for your faith. All these things. Be faithful teachers to the flock that you've been entrusted with. Alrighty, so we have identified the crowns. Now let's kind of talk about, shift gears for a minute here, and let's talk about when, when do we get these crowns. It's kind of an important thing. Again, it, when I was preparing this, it was weird because I'm, I'm, you know, not used to sitting up here and talking about Crowns, crowns. Again, I can't emphasize enough. I just can't wait to throw them at Jesus' feet. I, do, I, do I have to say that anymore? You guys hopefully all know my heart on that. I, 
it's, it sounds silly to talk about rewards up here, but it's also, I think, a, a good teaching. Okay, so earlier on we read in 2 Corinthians 5, one of the first passages I read, we read about the judgment seat of Christ that we're all going to um, stand before, all of us church believers. We read in that passage how we're all going to give account for everything we do, right? It's going to be tried by fire. Everything that we build on that foundation is going to be tried. We also read in 1 Corinthians 3, which we also read earlier, that at this specific judgment, our works, which are done with bad intentions, will burn up, and only those done with pure intentions will be rewarded. We also read that at this judgment, no matter what rewards are earned and not earned, we are still saved. Do we remember reading that? Okay. So this, this judgment we're going to talk about that we're seeing depicted here on the screen, this isn't going to be a judgment for whether or not we made it. We're already there at that point, right? Okay. So let's, let, let's make that make a little more sense. Don't just trust my, my statement on that. Let's actually dig into Scripture a little bit, use some logic, and, and see why I've arrived at that. In Revelation chapter 4, we see a pretty amazing scene play out if you've read that chapter in the Bible, where John is caught up. He sees a door open in heaven. He hears a trumpet, and he's, ca- he's caught up to heaven. You know, I, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll love to see how it really happened one day. I don't know if John was taken out of space and time and drug into the future and actually saw this play out. You know, God exists outside of time. I don't, my mind doesn't wrap around that completely, but maybe this stuff's already played out in eternity, and we don't know yet. That's a rabbit hole. We won't go down it. But John, John was, John hears a trumpet, a voice like a trumpet. He sees an open door. He's taken immediately to heaven and right there before the throne of God. Does that sound like anything? Most scholars believe that's just a depiction of the rapture in Revelation 4. So John sees some pretty amazing things. He sees a description of beautiful, precious stones, the throne of God with a rainbow around it, a sea of glass before the throne, four wild descriptive beasts, if you've read that, with eyes all over their bodies, wings everywhere. Then he also continues in verse 4 of chapter 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their head crowns of gold. Aha, there's some crowns there. Okay, so John describes 24 people sitting around the throne. So we, first of all, we see they're, they're sitting by the throne. I, I would think, and as you're looking at the hierarchy there, if, if these people are sitting around the throne, probably pretty esteemed people, right? They're not back in the mezzanine. They're clothed in white. Tells me that they're, they're a pure people, they're a redeemed people, and they have crowns on their head. Okay. Let's continue reading here for a minute and a couple other places in Revelation. What we're trying to figure out is who are these people? Who are these people sitting on these, um, in these seats? Who are these four and twenty elders? Revelation 1, 5, and 6. And from Jesus Christ, who was the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is the beginning of Revelation. Jesus is basically writing a letter to the, to the seven churches who are Christians at the time, and he calls us here priests and kings. 
Interesting. Nobody else in Scripture besides us, the church, and Jesus are priests and kings. Except for this strange guy in the Old Testament, Melchizedek. Um, if you guys have ever come across that, and a lot of people can't fully understand what, what the context was there or what was going on there in the Old Testament, but we see this encounter Abraham had with, with this guy named Melchizedek. But again, another rabbit trail. Let's continue. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. This is after the throne room here. And when he, being Jesus, the Lamb, had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders, so here's our elders, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So these people start to describe themselves, these four and twenty elders, these twenty-four elders, they say, we've been redeemed out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, we've been washed in the blood, and we've been made kings and priests. You can look everywhere and find nobody else that fits that description except for the church, right? I, I talked about this before last year, and um, just to kind of, so kind of to refresh this again, but the Old Testament, God mainly dealt with the Jews. It was not out of every tribe, tongue, and nation that people were redeemed. And back then, Christ hadn't died yet, so they, they hadn't been redeemed by the blood back then. That is a complete description of the church. So, for some reason, John sees these 24 elders sitting around the throne. They have crowns, so they've been, they've been rewarded with crowns, and most people believe this is a representation of the now-glorified church in heaven. Alrighty. So, in this scene, we see at this point Jesus is starting to open the scroll. Well, do we know what happens when He opens the scroll in Revelation? That's when it all starts. That's when the, the seven years starts with a bang, with a crescendo. Jesus opens that first scroll, and that's when the tribulation starts. But what already happened before that? There's already 24 elders in heaven representing the church. They've already been given their crowns. So is it safe to say that whenever this happens, it's already happened before the uh, tribulation starts to play out? Do we see the deductive logic there? Does that make sense? Okay. So there's actually a name for, for what this is. Um, we get it from the Greek. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Let's talk about that a little bit here. So, if, if you're standing in heaven and you've just been raptured, because the church age is going to end with a bang. The Bible tells us that anyone who has died from the time Jesus was on the earth and us who are alive and remain and who are living, when this happens, we're all going to be caught up at once, immediately, before God and this is when this judgment, this Bema seat, this judgment seat of Christ we read about earlier is going to happen. So if, if you're suddenly on earth, you're taken to heaven immediately, is it safe to say you made it? Are you at risk of going to hell at that point? There's a reason, there's a reason Christ took you. It's because you were one of his faithful. You, were, you were, had the blood of Jesus applied to you. You made it. You, you won the race. So you're in heaven we're not going to stand before Christ at this point and with the chance of still making it to hell. We just read, if you've got the foundation in Christ, you're there, you're in. But then here's where the rewards come. 
This is when our judgment, every idle word we've ever spoken, the Word tells us, every deed we've done, everything that we have done for Him is going to be tried by fire. This is that judgment. That's a scary, fearful thing. So I don't, don't want to make light of it, but it's a different judgment than the great white throne judgment. Okay. The great white throne judgment is a lot different, and there's, there's clear evidence in Scripture about that. Let's read this verse in Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne. Now, this is the judgment most of us think about. I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay. This, this happens chrono- chronologically at the end of the thousand-year millennium. So at minimum, we're 1,007 years away from this judgment ever happening. But the Bema Seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, happens the moment we're raptured. So they've got to be two different events, right? So we just read in Scripture that the great white throne judgment, what's going to happen at this judgment is all those who are dead are going to, anybody who's ever lived from Adam on, who's not a member of the body of Christ. Again, I can't emphasize enough. We're taken out of it. We're judged separately. We've had the blood applied to us. We've made it to heaven at this point. Anyone else who's ever lived, that includes anyone from the Old Testament, anyone after the church is gone that lives and makes it to the tribulation, and those that are born into the millennium for a thousand years, all those people are going to stand before the great white throne, and that's when they're going to be judged. Are you following me? Does that make sense? Kind of tricky. See how we can get that, get that mixed up in the Bible? And I did for a long time. I, I, I never, it didn't make sense. I always read about this judgment seat of Christ, and I was like, wait, that's, it seems like a different description than this judgment. Now, Jesus is doing the judgment on both of them. You know, the Bible tells us that the Father is, gave all judgment to the Son. So it's going to be Jesus Christ judging us, the church, and rewarding us for what we've done at, at this judgment and it's going to be God, the Father, allowing the Son at His right hand to judge those who didn't make it. And if their name is not written in the book of life, which is probably going to be the vast majority of them, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the Bible says. So, I want to be in this judgment. I want to be in that one. Um, my, my foundation is in that alone, but I want to build on it. I want to do things that when I get here at this judgment and when I'm rewarded crowns, I'm able to give them back to Jesus, and then I have a billion, trillion, trillion years to live, I want to look back and know that I'd done something that had mattered in eternity. So that's kind of what I wanted to encourage you guys tonight. Just rely on that alone for your salvation, but build on it. We've got to build on it. Um, we're, you know, we're a group here tonight that I think gets that and understands that and knows that it's more than just getting saved and and sitting on your hands. So hopefully that encouraged you. I went a little long, and Tom even gave me a break with two songs, so I apologize. We've got 15 or 20 minutes still devoted to prayer, and I I made a screen 
of some of the things that we can be praying for tonight. I, if you guys want to start praying here um, as they dim the lights. But if you want to peek up at the screen every once in a while, just as a good reminder of, of some of the things that are, that are needs. Um, of course, many of them you know up there, especially be thinking of the Mahalka family with everything coming up this weekend. It's going to be a very hard time for, for good friends of ours. So uh, peek at these. We've got 15 or 20 minutes here. We'll play some music and um, close in prayer. Thanks. <laughs>